Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Welcome back, friends, to part two. In part one, we found that God in his word gave us 12 identifying marks, we could call them, to help us know who this Antichrist power is. In part one, we looked at those 12 identifying points, those 12 identifying marks, and we finished with the question, well, who is this particular power? Who is the power that fits these identifying marks? Now, we are going to discover right now that there is only one power on the face of the earth that fits these 12 identifying marks. There is no mistake who this particular power is. Now, as we went through those 12 identifying marks, by this point, without me telling you who it is, you should be able to tell me who this particular power is. Let's just quickly review those 12 identifying marks. Mark number one, it arose out of the Roman Empire. Two, in Europe. Three, after 476 AD. Four, it uproots three kingdoms as it comes to power. Five, it's a religious and a political power, a religio-political power. Six, has a powerful man as its leader. Seven, it's more powerful than the other horns that were before it. Eight, it speaks blasphemy against God. Nine, it would attempt to change the law of God. Ten, it would persecute God's people. Eleven, it reigned for 1260 years. And twelve, it eventually receives a deadly wound. And the Bible tells us that the deadly wound would be healed. And all the world wandered and followed and worshipped this beast. Who is, this is the question friends, who is the power of Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7. Who is this power? Now, before I tell you who this particular power is, I want to explain one point to you here. This particular power is a system of which many, many people belong. I am not talking about the people. I'm talking about the system. We're not talking about people. We're talking about a system that God is identifying. Who is the power of Revelation 13? And Daniel chapter 7. Well, friends, there is no other power if you're going to be honest with those 12 identifying marks on the face of this earth that fits those marks other than the papacy and the Roman Catholic system. Now, that may shock many of you because the Roman Catholic system is a Christian church. How can that be the great Antichrist power of Bible prophecy? Now, once again, I want to remind you, I'm not talking about the people. There's many godly, lovely people in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about the system. I myself come from a Roman Catholic background. My family are all Roman Catholic. In fact, I actually have a sister-in-law who is a nun in the Roman Catholic system. And many of these people do a fantastic work in helping people around the world. I'm not identifying the people. Don't go out of here and say, hey, if you're a Catholic, you're an Antichrist. I'm not saying that. We're talking about the system. God is identifying the system here. And he's warning us about the falsehoods of this system. Let's now go through quickly these 12 identifying marks. And let's prove how they fit the Roman Catholic system and the Roman system only. The first identifying mark that we looked at 
that the Bible gave us was that this power arose from the Roman Empire. Did the Roman Catholic Church arise from the Roman Empire? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, friends. History is as clear as a bell that the Roman Church simply arose out of the Roman Empire. There's a couple of statements here from history. It says, To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. As the Roman Empire was going down, Constantine moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople. And when he left, there was more and more and more power given to the pontiffs or the popes or the bishops of Rome. And as the Roman Empire died, the power was slowly transferred to the Christian so-called Roman Empire. Notice another statement here. It says the popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. And friends, that's exactly what it is. It was a continuation in a Christian so-called form of the old Roman Empire. One more. The mighty Catholic Church was little more than Rome, the Roman Empire, baptized. Rome was transformed as well as converted. The very capital of the old empire became the capital of the Christian Empire. The office of Pontifus Maximus was continued in that of the Pope. Even the Roman language has remained the official language of the Roman Catholic Church down through the ages. And that's exactly true, friends. Where is the heart of the Roman Catholic system? It's in Rome. They are called Roman Catholic. Why? Because they just came out of the Roman Empire. They were a continuation of the Roman Empire. What is the official language of the Roman system? It's Latin, the Roman language. Where did it receive its power? It received its powers from the emperors of Rome. Identifying mark number one fits to a T to the Roman system. Our second identifying mark was arose among the ten horns. Remember in that vision of Daniel, he saw the little horn arise amongst the ten horns and we discovered it must be somewhere there in Europe. Did the Roman Catholic system arise in Europe? Well, we know very clearly from history that the Roman system arose right there in Rome itself, right in the heart of the old Roman Empire, right there amongst those ten original divisions of the Roman Empire. Vatican State is right there in Italy, in Rome today, and that is where it came from way back in the days of the Roman Empire when it was falling, to, falling, to, falling apart. Identifying mark number three, it would arise after the ten horns. Now we remember that those ten original horns, those ten Germanic tribes that came more down from the north, they settled in the area of the Roman Empire by the year 476 AD. So the little horn would arise after the year 476 AD. It would come to power after the year 476 AD. And we find through history that the Roman Catholic system came to power in the year 538. Why do I say that? That brings us to our next identifying mark, four. It uproots three kingdoms. As the Roman system came to power, it uprooted three of those original horns. Those three original kingdoms that were uprooted were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. How did the 
the, uh, the Herali, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths become uprooted when the papacy came to power. You see, in the year 533, Emperor Justinian, the Roman emperor, decreed that the bishop of Rome or the pope of Rome to be the universal bishop of the world, the corrector of heretics, and the, all, the, the empire was to become Roman Catholic. Now, many of the people didn't want to become part of the Roman system. And some of the different nations didn't want the authority of the Roman system above them. Three of those particular powers were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. They were Aryan nations. They were opposed to the Catholic system. And because they were opposed, they had to be removed out of the way for the papacy to come to supremacy. And they said, we are not going to worship the Pope as the supreme ruler of Christianity. So what happened was Justinian's forces basically destroyed them. His decree went forward in the year 533. We find that those three horns were plucked up. The Heruli in the year 493, sorry. We find the Vandals in the year 534 and the Ostrogoths in the year 538. Now what took place as Justinian's decree went forward in 533, there were still the Vandals and the Ostrogoths left. In the year 534, the next year, the Vandals were taken out. And a few years later, five years later, in 538, the last of those opposing powers, the Ostrogoths, was uprooted, it was destroyed, it was taken out of the way. And from that point forward, the year 538, Justinian's decree that all must join the Catholic Church or leave the empire or have their goods confiscated was put into effect. And as a result... Thousands tried to leave the empire. There was a great massacre as thousands tried to escape. But it was the year 538 that the Roman system came to power and those three horns were finally all plucked up by the roost. And you can go into history, get your encyclopedia out and look up the Vandals, the Ostrogoths or the Heruli and you will find that shortly after they were destroyed, they disappeared off the scene of history. The Bible said they would be plucked up by the roots and that's exactly what took place. They were totally destroyed, totally annihilated, as if they were plucked up by the roots, and they don't exist amongst us today. And this fits exactly as the Bible tells us it should with the Roman Catholic system, that when it comes to power, three of the horns had to be plucked up, and these three powers were destroyed to make way for the papacy to gain control. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths were those three powers. Identifying mark number five, that this power was different from the other horns. This little horn power was to be different from the others. The papacy was to be different. And we find today, friends, exactly what the Bible says is exactly what the papacy is. Remember Revelation 13, verse 4, and they worshipped the beast. The papacy is not just a state power, it is a religious power as well. It's a religio-political power power the roman catholic church is not just a church it is also a state in fact it has its own constitution has its own coinage seal flag newspaper radio ambassadors it's not just a political a religious power friends it's a political power in the world and we are going to discover in our future lectures that this particular power which basically lives on 108 acres there in rome in italy is the most powerful nation on the face of this earth. Why is it, if they are just religious, 
that you have nations of the world that send political ambassadors to the Vatican and vice versa. You know, back in the early 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president of America, for the first time ever, because America and the papacy have always been poles apart, one was Protestant, one was, of course, Catholic, they've been diametrically opposed, and when Ronald Reagan decided to send an ambassador over to the Vatican, the American people were upset. But he said this, he said, I am not sending him over there as a religious ambassador, I am sending him over there as a political ambassador. And the people thought, well, that's okay. And around the world today, friends, there are more than 100 nations that have state representatives at the Vatican. It's a religio-political power. Our sixth identifying mark, we found that this power has a powerful man as its leader. Does the Roman Catholic Church have a powerful man as its leader? Well, they tell us this. They say, but the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds, therefore, requires complete submission and obedience to the will of the church and the Roman pontiff or the pope as to God himself. There's a very powerful leader at the head of the Roman Catholic Church, and that leader is the Pope of Rome. Identifying Mark number seven, we discovered that the look of this power was more stout than the other horns. It was a more powerful uh, power. It would rule in a greater way than the other ten horns that were before it. You know, the papacy ruled, especially back in the Dark Ages, as no other power has ruled. In the book Papacy and World Affairs, it says this, Under the Roman Empire, the popes had no temporal power. But when the Roman Empire had disintegrated and its place had been taken by a number of rude, barbarous kingdoms, the Roman Catholic Church not only became independent of the states in religious affairs, but dominated secular affairs as well. It was the dominating power, friends. It grew into such a strong power that eventually when kings came in to, to see the Pope, they would have to bow down and kiss his foot. It was Pope Eugenius II who died in 827 AD that made the law that when you would come in before the Pope, you would kneel down and you would kiss his foot. And from that time, it was necessary to kneel before the popes to have an audience with them. It was Pope Gregory VII, I believe it was, that ordered all princes to submit to this practice. And now, friends, when you look at this, this is power, isn't it? If I was to be able to, to, be able to command you today to bow before me and kiss my foot, that would show I am a powerful person wouldn't that be right but the strange part is friends that the bible tells us that jesus himself said that anyone among you that thinks himself to be the chief let him be your servant there seems to be a great contrast between the way the papacy ruled through the dark ages and our lord and savior the way he ruled and walked this earth in meekness and in humility god did not command man to be honored by other men Jesus said, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Don't be the boss, be the servant. But they ruled with power as no other nation in Europe was able to rule with. Identifying Mark number eight. We are told this power speaks great words and blasphemy against God. Now remember, we looked at 
in part one, two identifying points from the Bible of what blasphemy is. The first one was claiming to be equal with God, and the second one was claiming for man, claiming the power to forgive sins. Does the Roman system claim to be equal with God, and do they claim the power to be able to forgive sins? Well, of course they do, friends. Notice these statements on the screen here. This is the encyclical letters of Leo the Thirteenth. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. The papacy believes and the Pope himself believes that he is in the place of God Almighty on this earth. Friends, that is blasphemy according to the scriptures. That is actually blasphemy in my mind to the highest degree. Another statement here says this, the Pope is of so great a dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. The Pope is as it were the vicar of God on earth, chief king of kings, having plenitude of power. Friends, there's only one person in this universe that's referred to as the King of Kings, and that's Jesus Christ. But they believe the Pope is also the representative of God on earth, King of Kings, having plenitude of power. Notice this statement. It says, All names which in the Scripture are applied to, the, to Christ, by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. And when you first look at that, you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But when you start to understand the names that the Bible applies to Jesus Christ, and they're saying that's the same names that the Pope has, some of those names are this, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, Wonderful, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. They claim to be equal with God. And according to the Bible, friends, that is blasphemy. What about the power to forgive sins? You know, the only one who can forgive our sins is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this world. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. Man has not the ability to read the human heart and to forgive the sinner. You know, there was a story I read about a lady who was dying in hospital. And as she was dying there, a Roman Catholic priest came by and said to her, would you like to confess your sins to me before you die? She was a bit delirious. She was close to death, but she said to this Catholic priest, please show me your hands. He gave her his hands and she looked at him and said, you are an imposter. The only one who can forgive my sins has holes in his hands. And you know, friends, Jesus Christ is the only one that can forgive your sins. But the Catholic Church believes that they have the power invested into the priest to be able to forgive the sins of mankind. Notice a few of these statements. Seek where you will through heaven and earth and you will find one created being who can forgive the sinner, who can free him from the chains of hell. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Roman Catholic priest. Friends, according to the Bible, that is telling us that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy in the highest degree. Jesus Christ is the only one that can forgive us of our sins. There's another statement here. Were the Redeemer to descend into a church and to sit in a confessional to administer the sacrament of penance and a priest to sit in a confessional, the penitence of each would equally be equally absolved. One more. The poor sinner kneels at his confessor's feet. He knows that he is not speaking to an ordinary man, but to another Christ. He hears the words, I absolve thy sins, 
and the hidden load of sin drops from his soul forever. Friends, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the one that can forgive our sins. And all of this man-made religion, all it does is shuts Jesus Christ out from our view. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, my friends, is the one we are to look to, not looking to man. Identifying Mark number 9, we were told that this power would change, or attempt to at least, change the law of God. Has the Roman Catholic system changed the law of God? Well, first of all, they believe that they have the power to do so. Notice this statement here. It says the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. So they believe for a start that they can change the law of God because they believe they are God on earth, which is a fair enough statement, I suppose. But can man change God's law? And have they tried to change the law? And this is something that shocks most people when they look at this. They've never realized this. But if you go into the Catholic Church, you come to soon realize that they've actually changed the law of God. You'll notice on the screen here, there's a, two, there's a chart, two charts comparing the two laws. The law of God as given in the Bible and the law of God as shown in the Roman Catholic Catechism. You'll find in the Roman Catholic Catechism law that one of the commandments is missing. It's actually the second commandment. The second commandment is gone. It's not there. Now, what is the second commandment dealing with? For those who know their Bibles, we know the second commandment deals with making graven images and bowing ourselves down to them. Why do you think that the Roman Catholic Church has taken out of their Ten Commandments the commandment that says, don't make any graven images and don't bow down thyself to them? The answer is simple, friends, because all through their church, all through their worship system is images, are statues of saints and statues of God and Mary and Jesus. And they bow down themselves to worship them at times. Now, when they did this, they had a bit of trouble here because if you take one of the commandments out, you don't have Ten Commandments anymore. Now, how can you make the movie The Ten Commandments when you've only got nine commandments left? You've got to have Ten Commandments. So what they did to rectify the problem is they split the last commandment in two. The last commandment talks about not coveting thy neighbor's wife and coveting thy neighbor's goods and so forth. They made the ninth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, his manservant, his maidservant, and so forth. But friends, just as Bible prophecy predicted to us, this system came along, and it has changed the law of God, and it's changed God's law in other places, and I'll deal with that in our next couple of lectures. There is only one power on the face of the earth that's changed God's law, friends, and that is the Roman system, not the people. We're talking about the system here. A little while ago, I got talking to a gentleman. He was a very staunch Roman Catholic, and I respect any person's religion, especially when they follow that religion. The sad part is today too many Christians say things, but they don't do them. Well, this was a Catholic man that followed his religion to the T. And he found out that I was once a Roman Catholic Christian. He said, how come you left the church? How could you leave the true church of God? And I said, well, look, there's a few reasons why. I said, one of the reasons I could give you straight off the, off the top of my head is that I found out that the Catholic system changed God's Ten Commandments. And he was taken back for a moment. He said, what do you mean the Catholic system has changed God's Ten Commandments? We've never changed God's commandments. 
I said, if you look at the Roman Catholic Catechism, because the Catholic Catechism is the official teachings of the Roman Church. They change over the centuries, but they're still the official teachings of the Roman Church. I said, if you look at a Roman Catholic Catechism, you will find that the Ten Commandments have been changed and that the Second Commandment has been removed and the last commandment's been split into two to keep the ten. He said, you wait right here. I have just bought in the last week the latest Roman Catholic Catechism and I want you to show me from that book where the commandments have been changed. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, wow, I hope I I can find in this new catechism where it's been changed in the law. He comes out to the front door of this house. I was speaking to him there. He invites me in. He sits me down. He gives me the catechism you see on the screen. He says, you find where the law has been changed. And I found the section where it talks about the Ten Commandments. It has a little chapter on each of the commandments explaining what the commandments mean and so forth. And I discovered as I was going through the book that the second commandment was missing. And I said, here, here it is. I said, you've got commandment number one. There's no number two. And we go to three and we go right down. And the last one's been split into two. He was just dumbfounded. He was just so shocked he didn't know what to say. All he could say was, I'm going to go and see the priest tomorrow morning and try and sort this out. But friends, they have changed the law of God and they believe they have the power to do so identifying mark number 10 this particular power was going to persecute and kill the saints of God has the Roman system persecuted the true church of God through the ages anybody that has a little bit of knowledge of history knows full well that the Roman system persecuted millions upon millions of Christians because they simply wouldn't follow the Roman system. A good example is St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. You know, Protestants still shudder today as they recall the events of St. Bartholomew's Day in August 22, 1572. It was on that day that Pope Gregory XIII executed a plot in which he killed between 50 and 70,000 Huguenots, mostly on the first day, the rest in about a two-month period. The Inquisition, the Crusades against the Huguenots, the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Thirty Year War, the Rack, the Dungeon, the Flames, the Martyrs burned at the stake are all historically linked to the Roman system throughout the Dark Ages. You know, it's estimated that around 150 million people were put to death during the Dark Ages by the Roman system. 150 million people, friends. Why were they put to death? They were put to death simply because they refused to worship according to the dictates of the Catholic system. There's some statements from history here. The church has persecuted only a tyro, which means amateur in church history, will deny that. We have always defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisition. When she thinks it good to use physical force, she will use it. Another one here that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. Another one here. Great numbers were driven from their habitations with their wives and children, stripped and naked, many of them inhumanely massacred. One more. It has been calculated that the popes of Rome have directly or indirectly slain 50 millions of men and women who refused to be parties to Romish idolatries who held to the Bible 
as the word of God. Why were so many martyred, friends? The simple answer to that question is many wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. They wanted to read the Bible. Many were martyred simply because they read the word of God. Many were martyred simply because they owned a portion of the scripture. And thousands were burnt at the stake because they refused to follow a system that they identified as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. You know, what I'm sharing with you tonight isn't something that I just found a little while ago. All of the reformers and all of the Protestant churches up until probably the last hundred years all identified Rome as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. It's nothing new that I'm sharing with you tonight. It's just old knowledge that many have believed in in the past. Identifying Mark number 11, this power would reign for 1260 years. 1260 years. How does this fit into the life of the papacy? Notice this chart on our screen. The 1260 years of papal supremacy. We learned there at the start of this lecture that the papacy came to power in the year 538 when the Ostrogoths, the last of those three horned powers, was overthrown. If we add 1260 years to the year 538, it brings us down to the year 1798. What happened in the year 1798? This is the 1260 years of which the papacy reigned. It's basically known as the Dark Ages. But when we come down to the year 1798, we find something very interesting take place. We find that the papacy receives a blow. Now the Bible told us that this power would receive a deadly wound. And in the year 1798, we find Napoleon... He sends his general Berthea down to Rome to take the Pope captive because Napoleon was trying to do what? He was trying to conquer the world, wasn't he? Of course, the papacy was in his way. He sends his general down there. They take the Pope captive. The, the, uh, the papacy at that stage loses its power. The Pope dies in captivity. And from that point, the papacy received a deadly wound. Many believe when this took place that the papacy was dead. It was going to be extinct forever. But the Bible told us something different. The Bible tells us in our 12th identifying mark that it receives a deadly wound, but the wound would be healed. When Berthea took the Pope captive, notice what the world thought. It says the papacy was extinct not a vestige of its existence remained, and among all the Roman Catholic powers, not a finger was stirred in its defense. One more there. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. In the eyes of the world, friends, the papacy was finished forever. It was extinct. It received a deadly blow. It received a deadly wound. In other words, it was dead. But, friends, the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us, yes, it would receive a deadly wound, but that that wound would be healed. Revelation 13, verse 3. The wound would be healed. And ever since the year 1798, when the papacy received that deadly wound, the papacy has slowly been growing back to power. Step by step, it's been growing back to power. In the year 1929, we find a big step take place. In the year 1929, we find the dictator Mussolini give back much of the power to the papacy that the papacy lost. There was a historic concordance signed between Mussolini and the papacy. 
and the papacy received a big healing to the wound it received in 1798. Now, when this took place in 1929, the San Francisco Chronicle reported on this and noticed the words that they used in the article. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing the autographs to the memorial document, healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Without realizing it, the San Francisco Chronicle used the exact words of the Bible about healing the wound. And friends, ever since 1929, the papacy has been growing back its power faster and faster and faster. Until today, as we'll discover in our next lectures, there is so much power in the papacy that when the recent pope died just a couple of years ago, the world bowed down to honour this pope. We'll go into that in our future lectures. But the question simply is this, friends. Who will you worship? God has revealed to you and I tonight who this particular power is. It's a heavy subject. It's an offensive subject because there's many faithful, godly, lovely Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. I was one of those people once. And when I heard this for the first time, it struck me. But I got my Bible. I began to study and I began to read. And I came to the conclusion that the word of God is so clear that it cannot fit any other power on the earth. And the question is for you and I, who will you and I worship? Will it be the God of heaven and the laws of heaven? Or will it be the laws and the systems of men? Now we can look at this tonight and feel a bit overwhelmed. And we're wondering how will we survive this whole thing? But I want to share the good news that comes at the end of the vision of Daniel chapter 7. It's a very happy ending for the people of God. Even though Daniel saw these various things that Little Horn would do, persecuting the saints, changing the law of God, he saw that this power would eventually come to its end and that God would set up his kingdom. Notice Daniel 7 verse 26. It says, The judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his, they're talking about the Little Horn, take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Every vision that we've seen so far, it always ends with God setting up his kingdom. Once again, this is the same story. God pitches himself as victorious, his people as victorious, and a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that will be set up. Where there's no police, where there's no prisons, where there's no sickness, death, poverty, or suffering, and God is inviting each one of us to be part of that kingdom tonight. In Matthew 25, verse 34, he says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Friend, Jesus Christ wants to share that kingdom with each one of us. Time is running out for planet Earth. We are going to find out in our next lectures that we are right in the middle of the final events of Bible prophecy. The Bible tells us that this power would receive a deadly wound, the wound will be healed, and eventually the whole world will wander and follow after this system. We are right at the doors of this taking place. And I want to encourage you tonight, friends, to take the hand of Jesus Christ. Look to him as your Lord and Savior. Don't look to man. Don't go and get your sins confessed by man or look to man for spiritual guidance. Look to your Bible and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will guide and he will lead and direct you into the truth. 
In our next meeting, we're going to continue on from this point. Our next meeting is called The Seal of the Living God. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit cornerstone-ministries.org. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. the 
Till I shall vanish in eternity. 
us to lighten. Teach me the danger of these realms below. That lamp of safety o'er the gloom shall brighten. That light along the path of peace can show. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combine. Till night shall vanish in eternal Hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Following the Diet of Worms, Luther was still under a lot of pressure to recant and compromise in his positions with Rome. He was even threatened with banishment, but he would not be moved. He even said he would give up assurance of a safe conduct, but never his positions on the Word of God. As Luther left Worms and traveled across the country, he was warmly received by the German people. But there were still many people who wanted to kill Luther, and the emperor himself said that as soon as the assurance of his safe conduct should expire, that measures should be taken to end Luther's work. The elector of Saxony, Frederick, devised a plan with some of Luther's friends to capture him and keep him hidden for some time. He was taken here to Wartburg Castle, a place kept so secret that even the elector, Frederick, did not know that he was being kept here. Luther's enemies rejoiced, thinking that he had been defeated, but this time for Luther would prove to be a double blessing. Not only did it withdraw him from the heat of the battle, but it also took him away from the public praise and adulation, something that can spiritually maim even the strongest of men. It was here in this room that Luther stayed during his time here at the castle. Like the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation as a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, while Luther was hiding here in this castle, he translated into German the New Testament. He would translate the Old Testament later, after his return to Wittenberg. Another challenge to the Reformation would now appear on the horizon. In Luther's absence, other reformers had arisen whose message was different to that of Luther, and it was drawing away a lot of people and dividing the movement. In particular, some people thought that it was acceptable to use violence as a means to abolish the mass and to rise up against the oppressors. Thomas Munzer was a leader of this movement. This news was relayed to Luther, and he felt a deep burden for his people back in Wittenberg as he thought of them as a shepherd thinks of their sheep. Despite having no assurance of a safe conduct, he left Wartburg Castle and headed for Wittenberg. Luther's return caused a great stir, and the church filled at the first opportunity to hear him speak. Luther stood up and reaffirmed that the Mass was a bad thing and ought to be abolished, but that no one should be torn from it by force. It was not their job to force the conscience of anyone, no matter how strong they felt about the matter. 
Luther was able to check this uprising for a while, but it would arise later on with devastating results when Thomas Munzer himself was killed. Every time there is a true revival, Satan brings a false one along. Even so, at the end of time, there's going to be a true revival of godliness, and then there's going to be a false revival as well. May we be faithful to God that we will be part of the true revival that will take place at the end of time. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. Hello. I'm Casey Butler, and I want to share with you today something that I've learned about God. In the world of Christianity, there is a tendency to swing from one or another perspective of God and what He is like. On the one hand, Christians may emphasize the grace of God, and often those who do this will say that the law has been done away with at the cross, and we don't need to worry about keeping it. Now, even if Christians don't go so far as saying that, oftentimes there can be an emphasis on God's grace so much so that God's law just fades in the background and nothing much is said about it. And there is, there is this strong overemphasis of God's grace to the exclusion of his law. On the other hand, some people emphasize the law so much that God's grace is put in the background. And people who do this oftentimes end up having a, a dry, formal, even legalistic experience that's so focused on, on doing and trying to, to keep the law that they forget how God is gracious and, and kind and merciful to us who are, who are sinners. Now, it's interesting about this, this tendency, because both groups are actually emphasizing an attribute of God and his character. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God is also just, and he has a law, and he stands by his law. That is part of the stability of his government. But there's something wrong with overemphasizing one or the other of these attributes to the exclusion of the other. And let me illustrate. Say you had a clothes peg and you wanted to show someone who had never seen a clothes peg what a clothes peg is like. Well, just imagine you pick up the clothes peg, you split it apart so that you've taken undone the two wooden peg parts, uh, sides and you've, the spring in the middle, and you've split it into two different parts. And you go up to your friend and you show them just one of the part. Now, is that really going to give them the right picture of what a peg is like? I mean, they're not even going to be able to see how it works and what it does. All they're going to see is one wooden side. Or maybe one side in the spring. It's not really going to give people or your friend a clear picture, a clear understanding or illustration of what a peg is like. Well, it's the same with God. If you only emphasize one aspect of his character, you'll only get a one-sided picture of God and what he's like. So, for example, if you're overemphasizing grace so much that 
you're putting lore in the background, then you're gonna get it, the impression that, oh, God loves you, it doesn't matter what you do, you're gonna get away with just about anything you wanna do. Uh, he's not gonna necessarily come around and bang you over your back if you do something wrong. You know, it's all good. That's the kind of understanding you're gonna get. And God, God is gonna seem just, I guess, a bit cheap in that way. And, and shallow. And on the other hand, if you have just a focus on the law and, and God's justice, you might have an experience and perspective and understanding of what God is like that he is, that, that makes you afraid because you think that he's going to be standing over your shoulder ready to beat you over the head if you do one thing out of line. And <laughs> quite frankly, you're probably going to hate God because a God like that is not a God you would want to be around. But when you reveal both God's merciful and gracious side of his character as well as his, his justice and law, you are showing a balanced perspective. When they're both together, you get a true picture of what God is like and who he is. And it's interesting, this is very much supported by the scriptures. In Exodus... When Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord proclaimed his name or his character, who he is. He proclaimed it to Moses. And this is what he says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now you would have noticed in that text that it talked about God's mercy, his goodness, long-suffering, graciousness, forgiveness, all of that, but then it said he won't clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. You know, he will, he will be just in terms of, of his law and in terms of sin. So you can see as God is proclaiming who he is and his character, both of those attributes are clearly revealed. Psalms, in Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, this idea is also presented. It says, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a beautiful verse and it's often um, quoted in connection with Christ on the cross and what he did because in doing that, when Christ died for our sins, he was showing an ultimate act of grace to take our punishment that we deserve, to take it upon himself and let us go free. That was an ultimate act of undeserving grace. At the same time, it was an ultimate act of vindicating his law because it showed that there must be a punishment for sin. There must be a punishment for breaking and transgressing that law. And so at that one moment, God revealed his, his mercy, his character of mercy, as well as his character of justice. These combined he revealed on the cross through Christ. Christ in his ministry 
also very much represented what God is like and represented these two attributes. In John chapter 1 verse 17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There you see it again, grace and truth. Truth is that which is the stable, um, solid, unchanging aspect of God's character. And it reminds us also of things like God's law and his justice. You know, those stabilizing attributes is is what is encapsulated there. And Christ, you see in his ministry, he, he went about, we're told, he went about teaching, preaching and healing. Healing revealed Christ's grace and compassion for those who were sick and suffering and, you know, those merciful, tender characteristics. Christ's preaching, though, and teaching revealed his truth. You know, he was preaching truth. He was preaching righteousness and repentance, all of those more solid, unchanging aspects of God he was revealing in that aspect of his ministry. So you can see that Christ revealed those dual characteristics of God in his work and life. So it is important that we see this balance clearly in our minds so that we can, first of all, for our own life, in our own spiritual walk with God, get a true picture of what He is like. And only then can we be able to reveal to others exactly what God is like and not present a one-sided picture that is going to distort who God is and may quite well turn people away from God because it, it just seems extreme or or unattractive but when we present those two aspects together in a balanced way people will see God truly as he is and will be drawn to him so next time you're hanging some clothes on the line with a clothes peg may you remember that God's character is a beautiful balance of mercy justice grace and truth And may you be inspired to reveal this balance in your own life that others may be drawn to him. God bless you and bye for now. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.